Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It reads, And they devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through this text. I pray that you would encourage us as a new community, as a church, as the fellowship of believers, as a new humanity, that we might see that this is truly extraordinary, yet at the same time very ordinary as we live our lives with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. I want to preach on this theme, the extraordinary, ordinary church. The extraordinary, ordinary church. We are going through the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we get a glimpse into the first church. And it is both extraordinary and, at the same time, very ordinary. It's extraordinary first in this sense. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw that previously in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon the many. And in verse 41 it says, those who were received His Word were baptized. So there is uh, uh, baptism as the normal part of a believer's life. The New Testament doesn't understand a unbaptized believer. If you're a believer, you are baptized. And it goes on to say that that day, 3,000, everybody say 3,000. 3, That's a big number. 3,000 were added to their number that day. The Holy Spirit came, one Spirit, all right, the same Spirit filled the many, 3,000. And then as a result, immediately what happens is that the many become one. 3,000 become one. You know, Jesus said in John, the book of John chapter 14, verse 12, he said that through the apostles, he's going to do, through the church, he's going to do greater works. We're going to see greater works than even he did personally in his own ministry. And that's immediately what we see happening. 3,000 people, that's more followers of Jesus Christ in one day added than during Jesus' entire ministry, physical ministry, that is, while he was here on earth. And then in verse 47, we're told that day by day, their number continues to grow. This is a megachurch overnight. 
And for those of us who are part of a small church, sometimes we can glamorize sort of the intimacy of a small church and think that we sort of care for each other in a certain way because we're a small church. And I just want to say this. Look, a big church is not intrinsically better than a small church, but don't get it twisted. A small church is not intrinsically better than a big church. All right? Would I like to see the Garden Church have 3,000? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? 3,000 people in our neighborhood across Baltimore City falling on their knees, calling Jesus Lord, getting baptized. Oh, no, no, no. We're actually trying to, no, we don't want that. (laughs) Are you kidding me? But the point I'm making is this, is the model uh, is a very large church, all right? And what we see is it doesn't matter how big the church is, there are things that apply simply because we are the church, all right? There are marks, there are distinct factors of what it means to be the church because we are filled, small or large, with the same Holy Spirit. And that leads us into this passage today. There was a little boy in Chicago who, uh, on his own, started walking to a church across the street. Uh, Sometime later, his family moved to the other side of Chicago, and the boy would make a trek every Sunday morning all the way walking to that church. And a friend asked him once, he said, why do you uh, take this long, tiresome walk to church every Sunday morning? And he replied, because they know how to love over there. You know, it makes me wonder, we've got to wonder, if in our sick, broken, divided society, if a church knew how to love, if we would, if we would say something to broader society. I wonder if we could be a light to society. I wonder if we could model what the community of God looks like, that we're not driven by the divisions out there because we are united by the Spirit of God in here. The author that told the story about the boy in Chicago, he went, on, he went on to say, show me a church with love, and I will show you a power in the community. We've got to wonder if we even know what church community is. So often we are Filled, I don't mean us as the Garden Church, but us as humanity, as the human race, we are filled with lovelessness. So many churches are filled with doctrinal deficiencies. And as a result, we have complete confusion. And as the old proverb goes, if you can't convince them, then just confuse them. And I think that's the tactic of so many today. If you can't convince them of the beauties of the gospel, then just confuse them to make them feel like they're having a spiritual experience. How many people are just confused week in and week out to have a a worship experience through manipulative tactics to be brought into this experience that feels like church instead of actually being the church? But many people would rather be fooled, you see. They would rather be fooled into a spiritual experience than have to actually deal with the reality of what it means to be the church. Now, on, on the flip side, there are those who genuinely want community. 
But again, we've got to wonder, do we even know what community looks like? Daryl Bach said this of community today. He said, much of Western culture drives us to an individualism that undercuts the development of community. He says, we are taught to have things our way. And that being able to have our own individual desires catered to is how to measure the success of an organization. And so you get businesses like Burger King who define their success by you coming into their restaurant, having it your way. Listen, church, can rugged, I saw that Burger King, I saw that Burger King card, can rugged individualism, can rugged individualism, a demand for my personal preferences, can that be compatible with true, genuine Christian community? Daryl Bach goes on to say, the biblical picture is not of what someone receives from the church, although one does receive a great deal, but of what one gives and how one contributes to it. I want to speak to you this morning on this theme, the extraordinary, ordinary church. It's extraordinary, not because of their amazing programs. It's extraordinary not because of their, uh, their, their facilities or their equipment. It's extraordinary not because of their music team. It's extraordinary not because of the dynamic personality of their preacher. It's extraordinary because of the ordinary nature of this church. When we think of the first church in Acts, sometimes we think of this extraordinary church that we cannot be, almost like it's this utopian idea that we can never achieve. And what I want to tell you today is it's, extraordinary, it's extraordinariness, is that a word, is found in its very much so ordinary day-to-day life and love for one another. Yes, it's extraordinary, but it's also very ordinary. So how does an ordinary church uh, look extraordinary to the world? Well, let's look at it. I've got three uh, uh, headings for this text. We see here a shared purpose. We see a shared possessions. And we see shared participation. Let me break this down for you. First, we see shared purchase, or I'm sorry, purpose within the first church, shared purpose. It says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. They devoted. That word devoted means a faithful persistence. There are four things here that they devoted themselves in, that they were constantly thinking about, that they were constantly participating in that they were persistent in. These four things are all marked off in the Greek by an article or the, the word the. 
uh, according to the way that the, they, they would write the Greek language, a the means that this is something very specific and unique, not just general. There's four things here. First, the teaching, or the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Not just teaching in general. They weren't just getting together to read a book or to hear the latest philosophies of the day, but there was a specific teaching that they were persisting in, that they were devoted to. And it's sad today as we think of how few churches persist in the teaching of God's Word. So often uh, we find ourselves wanting to have our ears tickled we want to talk about the latest leadership lessons on love, marriage, business, being a good employee, being successful in life. Some churches preach the CNN headlines Sunday to Sunday, while other churches, if you don't like that, other churches preach the Fox News headlines from Sunday to Sunday. But the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that's a specific teaching. The apostles were the ones specifically given the task of taking the message of Jesus to the church. The the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. That means that there are no longer apostles today. Otherwise, the foundation would still be being built The apostles, I believe, ceased with the writing of Scripture. The apostolic teaching then can be found in the 27 books of the New Testament. The Bible is what they devoted themselves to. How do we know that these apostles were teaching God's Word? Well, we're told here, it says that they also, uh, that, that, that through the apostles, there were many wonders and signs. What was the purpose of wonders and signs? It was to confirm the authenticity of the apostolic message. It came with a sign. This is indeed from God. And so we today ought to be devoted to what kind of teaching? Not just any teaching. Not just the best ideas and, uh, uh, that we can find in books. We should be devoted to the teaching of God's Word. Secondly, They are devoted to the fellowship. Uh, Fellowship is more than just having a meal together after church. Uh, Fellowship is more than just 10 minutes of chit-chat about the ravens after church. You know, sometimes we think of a church with good fellowship as a church that is chit-chatty. Like, man, they really hung out after service. Well, it kind of depends what the rest of our week looks like. Fellowship is more than just simply the, um, uh, oh, the, the extroverts in the room doing their thing. You know, and then introverts feel like, I don't know if I can be part of this. Fel- it's too much fellowship. Well, what is fellowship? What is fellowship? It's not just any fellowship, but it's the fellowship. There's a specific kind of fellowship. The word here is koinonia, which is a word used in other uh, texts to refer to the mutuality that you would find in marriage. That's the idea of fellowship. A connectedness to each other. A connectedness for each other. A connectedness between each other. Fellowship is not just a part of what we do, but fellowship is the whole of a church 
of a Christian, I should say, centering his or her life around the church. Meaning a Christian is no longer an individual, and I do my church thing on Sundays, and sometimes we do some fellowship over here. But fellowship is the definition of our whole relationship as I center my life around you guys. Like actual, not just, not just kind of ethereal, you know, sort of capital C church, but no, like actually you guys. All right, some of you who, who annoy me sometimes, all right? No, I'm just kidding. None of you annoy me. But, but, but actual flesh and blood people. Yeah, you, Kevin. Um, even Kevin, <laughs> right? Um, we are centered, the, the early church centered themselves around each other in the same way that a husband and wife would center themselves around one another. Minus a couple things, all right? Um, you get what I'm saying. The world centers itself around you name it. In the world, a man or a woman might center themselves around their job. Your life might be centered around your kid's education. Your life might be centered around your kids, your family, your spouse. Your life might be centered uh, around your home or uh, a, a, a desire for what life could be, goals, dreams, aspirations. But the Christian ought to center their life around the church. That is fellowship. That is koinonia. And listen, it is transformational in the way that you think about your life. It completely changes everything about the concept of what it means to live in this world. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, thirdly. By the way, I, I, I don't think these are four just kind of random things. I think they birth one another. So I think the apostles' teaching births the fellowship, meaning there is no fellowship without the rootedness in the apostolic teaching. And fellowship, I think, is seen in these next two ways. First, the breaking of bread. I think that's probably a reference to the Lord's Supper because it's a specific kind of breaking. This isn't just general breaking bread, eating together. It's the breaking of bread, a specific meal. It's actually a different uh, wording than what's used in verse 46 when it says they're breaking bread in their homes. That's a different kind of, that's probably more like eating together, just sharing meals together. But here in verse 42, we see a specific kind of bread breaking, and I think that's probably a reference to the Lord's Supper. Uh, the body of Christ broken under the wrath of God so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins and made whole. They devoted themselves to this meal uh, which signifies the beauty and the wonder and the unity and the acceptance of each other in Christ. Fourth, they devoted themselves, it says in verse 42, to the prayers Historians say the early church, the first church, probably used a number of different Jewish set prayers. They probably prayed the Lord's Prayer along with spontaneous prayer. Whatever prayer they prayed, they were devoted to it. And in the same way, we are to be devoted to prayer as a church. They were together. They were shared. They shared their 
the same purpose together as a new community. The effect of this is found in verse 43. It did not affect momentary panic or uh, just a moment of emotions, just good feelings for an hour. That's not the effect that it had. But in verse 43, it says that awe or fear, reverence of God, came upon every soul. They were shaken to their core with fear of God, with awe, with reverence of God. It was transformational for them. They shared this. Secondly, they shared their possessions. They shared their possessions. At this point, everybody starts holding their purse and their wallet a little bit closer. (laughs) They start gathering their things. They shared their possessions in verses 44 through 46. It's in some ways a display. It's one of the displays of koinonia, of the fellowship. What we see here is that the church was not an unearthly community, but they were very earthly, meaning they had weight and gravity and real needs they had to eat. They had to stay warm in the wintertime. And so they began to share their possessions with each other. In verse 44, it says that they had all things in common. That's actually a popular phrase in their their day for uh, the way that Greeks would organize themselves among friend groups. Greeks would uh, commonly have friends, just a few groups of friends that you would share all things in common with. What's remarkable about the early church is that they weren't just a few friends who were looking out for each other. But they had this kind of friendship, this intimacy, this bond with 3,000. Many of whom could not have known each other. And they were immediately into this community of tight-knit friendship. They shared all things in common in verse 44. It goes on in verse 45 to explain what this looked like. It says they, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now this selling of their possessions and then distributing to those who had need, this was not required of them. Nowhere does it say that anybody came along and commanded them to sell their possessions and to distribute. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, we see that this practice that quickly developed in the early church was not commanded, but it was completely voluntary and willful. It's narrative. It's not law. So therefore, no church should come along and require all of their members to sell something or to sell everything and give it to the poor. And as a matter of fact, uh, I would go so far as to say this. It's in the voluntary nature of it that we see its beauty. Like cults are not beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Like a society where you're required to lose everything and give it to the need. That's not beautiful. That's just a requirement. It's in the voluntary nature of it that we see love. It's not based on strict stipulations, based on rules, but it's a willing subsidy based on love. 
It's not a ban on private ownership. As a matter of fact, we see that Peter, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, actually still had his house. However, it is a ban on greediness and lovelessness. We see that Peter immediately began using his house for the sake of the church, even though his name might, might have still been on the title. Patrick Henry put it this way. He says that what we see here is the law of friendship. Meaning, there is not a lack in the community which cannot be met by what someone else already has. The principle that we see here is that the the unity of the body found in the Holy Spirit immediately produces love, and that love has hands and feet. It immediately begins to share what they have to meet the needs of what others do not have. We need to rethink some things. We need to rethink our house. Our house could be a place to love other people. That extra room in your house could be a home for somebody that needs some cheaper rent. Your refrigerator could have food in it that's rotting that could be used to create fellowship and love around your table. We need to rethink our goals We need to rethink our luxuries. Uh, You know, and you might say, look, I I don't even have anything. I I don't, okay, you don't. But if you could, what would you have? You see what I'm saying? Like, what are your goals? What are your material goals in life? Oh, it's good to, praise God when a Christian has wealth. I tell my kids, like, look, if, if you end up in the working world, try to get some money. You know, it's good to work for money. And, but I, but, but it's, it's good because I think Christians will steward the money better than the world will. So this isn't a command for, toward poverty, but it's a question of what are our goals with that money? What are our goals with our material things? How might they be used to be shared so that others who have needs might find their needs met? Or do we just build barns? And allow our grain to rot in our barns while the hungry starve. Do our goals serve my desires? Or do my goals serve God's people? When your goals in life are to serve God's people, I wonder how that would change things for you. Again, it's not forced. What we see is very genuine here. Sharing based on love. Houses, clothing, neighborhood, sharing our days, sharing our tables. Fill in the blank. You've got three coats. Someone in the church doesn't have any. It's cold. What do we do? How does love motivate us? Number three. Number three, so they've shared purpose. They share possessions. And thirdly, the, the, the first church shares in participation. What I mean by that is they're participating together on a regular basis. 
This isn't just sort of like an at a distance, I'm kind of generally a part of them through a, a, you know, a, a common sort of belief set, but there's an actual participation of life together in the first church. It says in verse 46, day by day, every day. What are they doing? They're attending the temple together. Every day. They're going down to that massive temple in Jerusalem. They would gather in this huge area called Solomon's Portico. It was about three football fields wide. And you'd have 3,000 members of the church coming in on a daily basis, hanging out after work. Crazy, isn't it? Like, well, before Netflix and before the internet and and before kids' sports leagues and all of these things that take up so much of our time, what did they do with their time? Let's go hang out with the church. Let's be together. Let's pray. Let's worship God together. There's this daily sort of experience. And as a matter of fact, in Hebrews, it says that we ought to encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today. Now, our church gathers formally on a weekly basis. We also have a midweek service and some other things. We don't have a daily gathering in our church, but that doesn't mean that a principle of daily interaction should not apply to us. We ought to organize our days in such a way that we can be obedient to Hebrews and encourage one another on a daily basis. Regular, shared participation. I wonder what might keep us from this daily sort of participation in one another's lives. I wonder if our physical distance from one another, our overscheduling, social media, movies, and the internet, I wonder if these things can crowd out our daily interaction with one another. I wonder how often sin, just indulging in sin, How much time is spent wasted on pornography? How much time is spent wasted on on using substances? I wonder how much time is spent wasted where we could repent and turn from these sins and actually invest in love with one another on a more regular basis. It also says that they were breaking bread uh, in their homes. It's, it's as if these Christians, 3,000 of them, start opening their homes to each other. Breaking bread is a common way to say they're eating together. They're eating meals. They're, there's maybe on a daily basis, you look across Jerusalem, and, and in hundreds of homes, there are pods of Christians eating together, sharing meals together. Someone once said, if you want to disciple somebody, eat with them. There's just something that happens when we start breaking bread together. This is what we call typically in our church hospitality. Hospitality. And so often I wonder if we even know what hospitality is as a culture. I wonder if as a culture we've lost hospitality completely in exchange for something cheap like a dinner party. You see, dinner parties are for friends only. Whereas hospitality is open for all. Dinner parties are occasional, whereas hospitality is as regular as possible. Dinner parties seek to entertain, whereas hospitality seeks to engage. Dinner parties seek to impress, whereas hospitality seeks to love. Dinner parties 
Say, welcome to my house, whereas hospitality says, welcome to my life. Dinner parties try to put on a fancy meal, whereas hospitality just embraces food that makes sense for the day. I wonder if we have a culture of hospitality in our church. Now, I can hear somebody already saying, well, Joel, all of this stuff, what about COVID? (laughs) All right, let's just think beyond COVID for a minute, all right? Let's pray that we get out of this pandemic, all right? Come back and listen to this sermon after the pandemic if you would like. (laughs) But even during the pandemic, are there ways that we can use some of the technology, text messaging and some uh, FaceTime and phone calls in order to do some of these things, even if we can't always be together in a physical form, face-to-face. Regardless, we are still the church, and the church shares a life of participation in one another's lives, in community with each other, and we need it. We need it. A missionary told me once that in Muslim countries, when somebody is converted, they need a whole new community. Like their friends turn their backs on them, their parents are completely uh, uh, against what they're doing, and, and this, this new convert, if they don't have the church literally becoming family for them, then they will just go back to their old ways and go back to their old society. And I wonder how often that might apply in our context here. When somebody's coming out of a background that is filled with addiction issues, violence, coming out of gangs, coming out of drugs. They need a whole church to be family for them, to be community, to open up their homes, to say, look, you have friends here. You've got people that are on the same page. We're filled with the same spirit. And this, is, this requires hospitality, shared life, koinonia with one another. Verse 47, as we come to a close in this passage here, we're reminded of Jesus' uh, commandment, the great commandment, which we read this morning. What is the great commandment? Love God and love others. We see that summarized, alluded to at the very least in verse 47 as it's sort of rounding out the beautiful picture of this extraordinary yet ordinary church. It says that they are praising God and they have favor with all the people. They're praising God. They're giving God glory. They're giving the one who deserves the honor, who deserves the glory, they're giving that to Him. That's what praising is. It could include songs, shouting, emotions. It could include being on your knees and quiet. It could just simply be the way that we talk about God. But they are praising God, loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Is it just the people in your church? Is it just your family members? Is it just those of the same class or culture as you? Who is your neighbor? Jesus basically says it this way. Everybody with a need. Anybody with a need is your neighbor. Anybody that you can love is your neighbor. And look, how, look what it says. The response of the community around them 
It says they found favor with all the people. This means that in their organization of their life together, that love is trickling, or maybe not even trickling, it's overflowing from the church into the community around them, and it says they've got favor from everybody around them. The the community as a whole is favorable of this new church, and it's because of the way they loved. And that's the story of the Christian church. I think of Emperor Julian 300 years later who, was, who despised the Christians. And one of the things that irked him was he said they not only take care of their own poor, but they take care of ours as well. We love not just our own. We're not a cult. We're not exclusive in that sense. No. We are turning toward our neighbor our neighborhood, our city, the world, and we love everybody. We love everybody. We cannot step over the needy without it breaking our heart. I think of George Mueller, who moved to a new town after uh, sickness had taken out so many parents, and there were literally kids on the streets, living on the streets as orphans, starving to death. And the rich, aristocratic community would step over the kids on their way home from work. But George Mueller could not, as a Christian, just simply step over a child and go home to his meal. And so one day he brought one of these children home with him and had him eat in his house. The next day, that child brought two more children who ate in George Mueller's house. And before you knew it, he had 12 kids sleeping on his living room floor And he was praying, God, give me the resources to provide for these 12 mouths. And before you knew it, he bought a house across the street and then built another one. And he began what we call the orphanage movement. Why? It's because he loved. It's because that love overflows. And we love our neighbor as ourself. Now, how does this work? Like, Where do these people come from who love in this way? How do we create a community like this? It's very simple. Verse 47, we're told, the Lord added to their number. It's a work that the Lord does. It's not something that we don't go out and recruit. We don't go out and, and spread the vision and say, hey, who wants to be part of this kind of lifestyle? That's not what it's about. It's it's a work that only the Lord does. Where do they come from? They come from the work of the Lord. The Holy Spirit of God moved over the valley of dry bones, and He did something, and He woke up these dry bones and turned them back into an army of men. It's the Lord's work. The church, listen to this, can only be the church if the Lord is the one that is making the members. Where do we find members? How do we get new members? The Lord. The Lord. He makes us. And it can only be that way. There was a, 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 a chicken and a pig walking down the street. Yeah. And they, they saw a hungry child. And the chicken said, hey, pig, I think we should feed this child. We should create a meal for him. Why don't we 
make a meal of eggs and ham and bacon. And the pig said, well, easy for you to say, you know, because that's going to require a part of you, but that's going to require the whole of me. Don't you know, church, that the life that we're talking about doesn't require just a part of you, but it requires the whole of who you are. It completely reorients your life around Jesus. That's why it's a work that only Jesus can do, because Jesus gave his whole life for you. What makes the church glorious? When we look at the beautiful picture of the church in Acts 2, 42 through 47, what is it that makes the church glorious? It's not the people. They're not perfect. We're going to find out that they are very imperfect, as a matter of fact. They've got issues of justice within themselves. It's not the people themselves. What makes the church glorious is who the church represents. And that is Jesus. Track with me. Jesus is the aim of the apostolic message. Jesus is the priest who intercedes on behalf of the people when they pray. Jesus is the foundation of their fellowship. Jesus is the broken bread who was broken so that they might be made whole. Jesus is the personification of generosity. As he had all of the glories of heaven, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Yet he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to the cross. He died. He gave the whole of himself for you. What does this meal cost him? What does it cost him to, to put a body like this together? I'll tell you what it costs him. It costs him everything that he had. He was in the belly of the earth until the earth could no longer handle him and spit him back up. Jesus rose from the dead three days later and he defeated death, recreating a new humanity. That's what we're about. We're a people who have found Christ to be our Savior. We found our lives not in what we can achieve, but in who He is. We are a people of the resurrection. We are a new creation. A people who have, through Christ, defeated death with Him, victorious in His resurrection. And therefore, church, we are extraordinary. Yet very ordinary. What we do is who we are. A people of the risen king. And so we just live like that. And that's what it means to be the church. To be who we are in Christ. Jesus died. He was raised. He lives for us. We are the recipients of that. And as a result, we share with one another koinonia, oneness, fellowship, reorienting our lives toward each other so that he might be glorified in our midst as we love God and love our neighbor. Amen?
Father, we thank you for the picture of the church that we have here in these verses. I pray, God, that you would encourage us, strengthen us, stir us up to love one another, to love you, to love the world around us in these ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.